Hello and welcome back to the podcast, What's With All The Dots. I'm here with Matt and Dylan, where we'll, we will be continuing the search for those tough and philosophical questions, like what's with all those dots? Join us in this episode as we talk about some of our thoughts on Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. So let's get right into it. In this first segment, we're going to talk about one of the quotes in Vonnegut's novel. So I'll quickly read it out. America is the wealthiest nation on earth, but its people are mainly poor, and poor Americans are urged to hate themselves. Americans, like human beings everywhere, believe many things that are obviously untrue. Their most destructive untruth is that it is very easy for any American to make money. They will not acknowledge how, in fact, hard money is to come by and therefore those who have no money blame and blame and blame themselves so obviously this is um a very true quote um the the division of of, of poor versus rich people is definitely a reality um and one of these articles i have here um uh, it talks about um you know how how much easier it is for for rich, rich people's kids to, to get into like colleges and, um, and just anywhere, get a job, go to college and how, how poor people don't have that opportunity. Um, any thoughts on that guys? Yeah. I mean, recently we had the college scandal with the, you know, famous people bribing their kids in the colleges. Uh, luckily they were caught and you know, that's illegal. So I think it's Lori Loughner. She like stage her kids as like star canoe players, canoeists. I don't know what that's called. And anyways, they got accepted in their college because of it. And now she's going to jail. Now, because she's a celebrity, her her sentence wasn't as long as it should have been. So that's another example of rich people being treated differently than everyday Americans. She And she was still rich. And she ended up having to do that. But um, like, just imagine if, um, if they had gone accepted, like... The, it would have been an even bigger scandal just because they got accepted and they were allowed to, to continue attending the school. Yeah, and uh, even without bribing, just the fact that uh, you're rich, uh, like if you're not rich, then it's uh, common sense and statistics have shown that like it's harder to get into uh, or pay off your college debts. Because if you don't, if your parents don't have money, then obviously they can't pay for your college and you're gonna have to pay for it. But if your parents do have the money and are willing to give it to you for college, then you have, you have more money to do, you know, uh, pay for a house, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm gonna go to college. I'm gonna have a ton of loan debts. Both my siblings are just about finished with college and they're gonna also have a ton of loans. That's just because my family's not rich. We're not celebrities. We don't have millions of dollars to pay for the highly expensive colleges. Yeah. yeah. And, um, some of us, like, we're not afforded that opportunity even with scholarships. Like, uh, like I've had a few scholarships in, in high school, and still that wasn't enough to, to pay for, for everything. And that's probably what's going to happen along the way in college, too. I'm going to get a couple scholarships, but still 
I'm gonna have to grab some some loans from the bank and end up having debt. Yeah, and like, what are what are we supposed to do about it? Our it's not our fault that our parents aren't rich or that they don't have money. So we have to just deal with the system and how and what's done to us. We can't change that unless you know we get super lucky, get a good job. There's really uh, not much you can do about that. Yeah, I'm going to build off the not our fault part. The quote says that poor Americans are urged to hate themselves. I mean, as we know, capitalism is a brutal system and people are told to work harder when they don't have enough money. Like we read The Jungle, Jurgis is a perfect example of this. He got job after job after job and couldn't make ends meet. They're struggling financially nonstop throughout the book. And also in during the Great Depression, many Americans blamed themselves for the unemployment in hard times. Now, obviously the Great Depression was not like the everyday American's fault. It wasn't really anyone's fault. And well, even with all that being said, I still believe that capitalism is the best economic form we have. However, the exact form that we're using today is not good because the government pays corporations, for example, the oil industry, they paid them like $14.7 billion in subsidies. And that's basically to encourage their production. And what the government is basically doing is putting down anyone else trying to rise up in the energy business, like renewable energy businesses, which, well, from a climate standpoint, we need right now, but we're not going to get into the whole climate thing right now. And so they're basically just pushing these com- companies down and encouraging building up the richer companies. Yeah, I want to add to that. Um, I had another article here that uh, was talking about bigger businesses making more profits. Uh, can uh, because of what happened with COVID, like businesses had to go online, and um, some of the smaller businesses uh, they couldn't do that because I don't know either they didn't know how or you know it just uh, they couldn't afford all the all the website making, all the planning Zoom calls, all that, and and because of that, uh, bigger businesses that that made a lot of money that went online made even more money, and now uh, smaller businesses are. Uh, left in the dust like they were they were already doing worse than bigger businesses and now since they don't have the, the those online options that that uh, bigger businesses have they're they're going out of business and they have they have to fire workers and people are losing jobs and that's just where we're at right now yeah we've talked about this term in uh theology class crony capitalism it's basically just a the relationship between businesses, business leaders, government officials, the big, the big businesses have a, it's a mutually advantageous relationship between each other. And then the small businesses, uh, like Diego said, are kind of left in the dust. Yeah, exactly. And I want to go a little bit more off Diego's point. And he said like these big business, Amazon and everything Elon Musk owns have just gotten richer and richer. Uh, Jeff Bezos got a divorce and he had the, he lost a ton of money in the divorce and he made that money back within like less than a month. And that was during COVID and it was like millions or billions of dollars. And Elon Musk, he has built his way up to now the richest man in the world. I don't know him and Jeff Bezos keep going back and forth right now. And that was during COVID. So these rich people are getting richer. Meanwhile, small businesses are being forced to shut down and lose their business, lose all their money, lose their houses. Yeah, it's a, it's a really um, unfair competitive 
uh, world that we live in. Um, I don't this doesn't really have anything to do with it. Well, it does, but um, w- one other thing that I wanted to talk about was the, the stimulus package plan. Because uh, if you guys don't know, it was originally only for, only targeted at the middle class at, at $1.3 billion, trillion dollars. And because um, that's who Biden was. Biden, he, he's always advocated for the, the middle class, the working class. But um, over, the, um, over the talks they had over the stimulus package plan, um, you know, they argue that they needed to help also the poor, you know, because that's, that's who we got to help. So in the end, they decided to, um, to sign into law a $1.9 trillion spending plan. Yeah, I think that was a really good move because the, even though the, the middle class is uh, dwindling and they're, they're not, their situation is not as good with COVID, but you can't forget about the poor people because that is a, a portion of our society that we need to tend to. Yeah, I never heard that it was excluding poor people. And that just sounds really weird to me. Why would you help? Why would you be giving money to people who aren't poor? I mean, I understand the middle class is suffering with COVID and everything, but the poor are also suffering. So why not spread it between the two? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here, I want to read this this quote from the article. Um, all right. Millions of people out of work are out of work through no fault of their own. I want to emphasize that through no fault of their own. So food bank lines stretching for miles. Uh, did any of you ever think you'd see that in America in cities all across the country? So yeah, so these people, I mean, even the middle class, they, they lost their jobs and now the middle class have become the poor class. So like, uh, like you were just saying, Matt, I don't, I don't really understand why he had only targeted at the middle class if, if even the middle class were losing their jobs. Yeah, it, it really doesn't make any sense to me. But I mean, in the end, he got it to the poor, the poor class too, so... I guess it worked out. I was personally in favor of the stimulus package. So I think we can all agree that the stimulus plan is good, but can we agree on some of these quotes picked from the novel? Hold on, Dylan. Before we start talking about those quotes, we need to hear from our sponsor. Take it away, Pizza. And now back to John with the weather. Yes, Andy. Tonight, a big storm. Storm this! Get the soccer offer from Pizza Hut and Pepsi. With every two medium pound Super Supreme, you get a real soccer ball and four cans of Pepsi for free. Yes, a real soccer ball and four cans of Pepsi for free! Don't miss the Pizza Hut and Pepsi soccer offer. With every two medium pound Super Supreme, you get a real soccer ball and four cans of Pepsi for free. What about the weather, Andy? Don't resist and call 19,000 now. Thank you, Pizza Hut. You could go ahead now, Dylan. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this segment will be more relating to literary analysis, where we take a look at some quotes from the book and discuss kind of the deeper meaning of them. So the first quote I want to talk about is uh, the part where Billy watches the World War II movie backwards. Now, I don't want to read the whole quote because it's almost four paragraphs, but to paraphrase it, Basically, it's telling the story of Billy watching a film on World War II, but it's playing backwards. And he describes the American planes taking off backwards with bullet holes and wounded men, and then they fly backwards over a German city in flames. And then he describes like the bombs sucking up all the flames from the ground 
and what he calls a miraculous magnetism that brings the bombs back up into the planes. And then uh, once the planes land uh, back where they started, they get they start getting disassembled by factories and uh, the, finally the minerals which they were made from get put back into the ground. And I, I just wanna read this last part of the quote. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground to hide them cleverly so they would never hurt anybody ever again. So uh, this part uh, goes back to what we talked about in the first po podcast where we discussed like uh, the morality of companies making weapons of mass destruction for the war. And I think uh, Vonnegut is saying here that he doesn't want the, these minerals to leave the earth because it just leads to more destruction and death. Um, any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, um, I see your point. I'm not sure if I completely agree, but to a certain point, I do. So reading that, I didn't think it made any sense. Um, you know, things are flying up. It's all backwards. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that was his intention. He wanted to show that nothing that is happening makes sense, that why these companies are building these death machines, it just doesn't make any sense to him and shouldn't make any sense for us. But also, yeah, so essentially by saying that the companies don't make sense, he doesn't want, we talked about how he doesn't want these companies to be making these machines. So he wants to put the minerals back in the earth. So yeah, I see where you're coming from. I, I see it both ways. Uh, yeah, for me, um, I thought he was just having like a seizure, you know, like or something because he has PTSD. But now that I, now that you said it, yeah, it makes more sense. Um, he, he wanted to go as far as to put all the minerals back. But um, I think we said this in the, the last podcast um, where, where war was a necessary evil. I mean, yeah, we could, we could decide to put all our guns away, all our firearms and everything. But if nobody else does it, uh, then we can't do it because then we'd just be unsafe. So I feel like there needs to be a mutual understanding between countries, you know, like, we don't want to fight, but I can't see that happening because there's always conflict. Even, I don't remember when this article came out, maybe three days ago. Uh, I think Biden was was calling um, the president of Russia, Putin, he was calling him like a murderer and then he got angry. So like any little thing can set off a country and then where would we be without our weapons and, the, and our armies? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if Putin comes, I, I want America to be able to defend themselves. Of right. course, though, not in a nuclear war, because that won't end well. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to have a nuclear war either, but we don't. Yeah, I would I would be OK with uh, agreeing no nuclear war. I mean, that's what the uh, they have uh, an agreement with for that. I'm pretty sure it's the, the the Paris Agreement where they all just decided that no nuclear war would be ever held because that, that would just equal the total destruction of the entire planet. Right. Once you launch enough, you kind of the smoke covers the rays of the sun and we all die. Fun things. Exactly. Yeah. Even the thought of that is just scary. I think I read somewhere that those 
agreements are um, expiring. I think so. That's I mean, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a nuclear war the next uh, 10 years or whatever, but it's still something to think about. Uh, yeah, real quick. Uh, sorry. Uh, it's not the Paris Agreement. It's the uh, Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. Yeah, the Paris Agreement is for immigration. Is oh, all right. <laughs> That's an important thing to clear up. But, um, yeah, I mean, Vonnegut saw the first ever drop into the nuclear uh, bomb, right, in Japan? Because that right. was to end World War II in the Pacific. So now he saw it, and... That could be part of the reason why he says this. He saw that America's corporations have been able to provide things to make this weapon of total mass destruction. And it really relates to everything that could happen today. Yeah. So um, I, another quote that I want to talk about, uh, here I'll read it. An American near Billy wailed that he had excreted everything but his brains, moments later, he said, there they go, there they go. He meant his brains. That was I, that, that was me, that was the author of this book. So this quote uh, kind of brings up some questions about how Vonnegut is portraying Billy. So like, to what, what extent is Vonnegut making up the story about Billy? Billy? Is it all fictional and uh, Vonnegut just placing himself in the story or did he really know someone named Billy who fits this description and he's kind of uh, making up the story from there about the um... <laughs> 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 Sorry. so I'm just, uh, uh, I'm just gonna say I'm just gonna start reading the quote or say yeah I agree with that uh, you could say, yeah, I agree with that. Okay. All right, five, four, three, two, four. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, all right, uh, next quote. I think we should talk about this. An American near Billy wailed that he had excreted everything but his brains. Moments later, he said, there they go, there they go. He meant his brains. That was I, that was me. That was the author of his book. So... Uh, this quote brings up a lot, I think, brings up a lot of questions about how Vonnegut is portraying Billy. So, like, to what uh, extent is Vonnegut making up the story about Billy? Like, is it all fictional and he just uh, put himself in the story? Or did he really know someone named Billy who kind of fits this description? And then he just makes up uh, the rest of the stuff. So I think he's definitely making parts of the story up. I don't believe anyone was captured by aliens called the Trailfalmadorians and put in a zoo for them to look at. That just doesn't seem realistic. Um, but in regards to the war, I don't think we could really ever know what parts of the war he's making up and which parts he isn't, unless if there's like, like a historical thing that's like that never happened. But I don't think we've seen that yet. And on the part of Billy, I think I mentioned this last podcast that I think Vonnegut actually is Billy. And that's his fictional character for himself. Yeah, now that I'm hearing you guys, I'm, I think I'm getting more confused because uh, here it's saying that was me. But I also thought that Billy could be um, Vonnegut. But 
I mean, I guess not. I, he could be both, or Billy could represent like just American soldiers in general. I was thinking right now, um, because uh, I think that uh, the uh, the Brits that they were with uh, in that jail cell, they were they were saying how the the Americans are like the worst uh, prisoners of war ever because they're just complainers, and um, I think well, I don't know. I don't think that had anything to do with that, but but I think Billy represents that people, that uh, the American soldiers, rather than Vonnegut himself. I think um, I think Vonnegut was just trying to like um, describe how how bad war messed with his head in like an exaggerated way. I agree with what you guys both said. I I really don't think that uh, the Shafmadurian stuff is all true, but I think Vonnegut. Vonnegut put himself in there to kind of uh, symbolize the American, the Americans in the war, like the prisoners of war. Yeah, um, I'm going to go back to Diego. So I, I could see that. I could see Billy just representing soldiers in general. But you mentioned uh, that was me. That was uh, the author of this book. And I'm not sure that he's saying that the person, that the American near Billy was him because it says um, his brains, there they go, there they go. So I think he's saying that his brains as Billy are also gone. Like after everything he's saying, he just can't wrap his mind around everything that is happening around him. His brain is just dead. I can see that too. But yeah, I'm thinking about it again. And I think like Billy meant... Like, that was me, as in, I also did that, because I can't take this war, so I'm losing my mind. Yeah, I, I could see it that way. Uh, yeah, here, I have this quote over here. It's, uh, this is Charles Medorian quote. That's one thing earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good news. If I hadn't spent so much time studying earthlings, said the Trophimodorian, I wouldn't have any idea what was meant by free will. I visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe and I have studied reports on 100 more. Only on earth is there any talk of free will. So they're two different quotes. I put them together. Um, the first part uh, I think it kind of goes with the, the first two quotes that we were talking about, how how Billy just wanted to hide everything away, put it all back, because he didn't want to have any awful times. And and that's why the, the Charles Minorian concept of time was so like appealing to him, because he didn't want to he didn't want to live or relive what uh, what he had seen in Dresden. Yeah, and about the the part about free will, like uh Obviously, he made up the part that Earth is the only place with free will. So does that mean that uh, Billy thinks that free will is out of the ordinary or, or like odd in some way? Right? Um, I wouldn't say that it's odd in some way. I think he's saying that it just does not exist. I mean, after everything he's seen in war, especially World War II, which was very brutal, um, he's seen very terrible things and he might just see like these people are forced into certain ways. Hitler forces his people to conform to a certain idea or else he kills them. And then, so he's saying like he, these 
brutal dictators have taken away the idea of free will from their people and forced them into his will. Yeah, and even the, the Chalcedorian, he, he was just saying, I, I've never even heard of that. They only have that there on Earth. And even on Earth, uh, like you were just saying, Matt, like there's, there's no free will because ideas are just pushed upon us. I mean, in America, we still have um, our basic rights of freedom of speech and, and thought. But in like other countries, like China, China doesn't allow like social media. So in China, you, you would have to purchase a VPN to, to, to safeguard your, your social media or to look even YouTube. I've seen, um, I've seen some YouTube videos where people in China, they're like, yeah, I had to buy a VPN just so I could use YouTube in China because they censor everything. So yeah, the Charles Medorian was right. Like th this talk of free will is, is just like something we made up. It's a, it's a concept that we don't even follow ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I'm writing a paper for global studies about overreaching government types and how they overreach on their people, how they take away basic human rights. And I, there is a lot to go through. I, I'm not even going to read you half of it because I, it's like 22 pages long right now and I'm not even done. But anyways, as you said, the thing about China is true. Um, and everything about how these dictators go into power, they're all very similar and they all do the same exact thing once they get power. They just take away any basic human right. Freedom of the press is usually the first thing to go along with freedom of speech. And then you mentioned the American basic rights. We are like the only country that actually has freedom of speech. Most countries, every other country actually, like certain types of hate speech are illegal. Certain types of other like government, like against the government speech is illegal. Now I'm not saying that we should encourage hate speech, of course, because hate speech is not good. But hate speech about our government like if they do something wrong i want to be able to speak out about it and we're one of the only countries that offer that type of free will i i just thought about this now um i mean it kind of seems obvious at least to me but billy maybe he doesn't believe he has free will because his he's kind of trapped by the by um ptsd and his his uh experience is made up experience with the Truff Medorians, I guess he's kind of trapped in that sense. Yeah, his, uh, his own memories are keeping him from, uh, from freedom. Um, like he can't, he can't forget about it even if he wanted to. And I guess maybe, yeah, maybe that's what he could be talking about. Like he just, he doesn't have the freedom to forget uh, all these bad memories and he wants it. So at this point, he's just decided there, there is no free will because I can't even control how my, how my brain acts. I can't control what I'm about to think about because uh, I go back in time and all that. Yeah, I have nothing else to add to that other than I never thought of that and I kind of like that idea. So now um, we'll move to our next quote. And I have, they had only one actual book in English, which would be in a Trail Fedorian Museum. It was The Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Susan. So my question is, why did Vonnegut choose to put this book as the only book they had in English? This one was, was tough to think about because I, I, obviously I didn't read the, the book, but um, I looked up kind of a summary and they talk about like drugs, I think, and maybe he's, uh, maybe, 
the Trafmadorian's view on like drugs or something. Uh, yeah, I, I had to go and look this up um, a couple of days ago because I've never actually read that book. But yeah, he was talking about um, how the, the wives in the book, that they got married. Um, they started using drugs and because because they were unhappy and maybe maybe billy's trying to i don't know be happy because uh well not be happy but but uh that that book is there on trough Mador because because drugs uh technically they can be used the same in the same way that the trough Madorians use time you use those you use any drug you're you escape to a different place so to say so um Maybe that's why they have it in the in the library, correct? Yeah, that's a museum. Oh, museum. Yeah, museum. Um, I can see that, as you both said, I never read the book. I looked up a summary, though, and it starts with Annie Wells, who is a character in the book, moves to New York to escape her hometown. And I think this could be similar to Vonnegut mentally putting himself in Trav Famador to escape his war experience. And kind of the reason why some people use drugs to, as you were saying, Diego, to escape reality of what's going around them. Also, I could see that maybe the Tralfamadorians see Earthlings as a quote-unquote valley of dolls because all people are treated unfairly by the companies, which is also kind of what that title means um, that we work for. And to go back to the drugs thing, um, people are addicted to drugs, and I'm gonna, just going to call them happy pills because when World War II ended, Everyone was celebrating. There were parades for the soldiers, as I said, I'm not against that personally, but um, no one really looked at how bad these soldiers could have been, what, how bad the things they saw were. They were just like, yeah, you're back. Great job. PTSD, as I mentioned in the last podcast, didn't exist yet. And I think he's saying that like they're on these happy pills. They think everything's great. Meanwhile, these soldiers saw the terrible parts of the war, terrible parts of the world where people were getting killed for their color, for their religious beliefs, for not being blonde and having blue eyes. And I think he's saying that most Earthlings don't see the true meaning behind all the terrible things. They're just focused on one thing, and that's the happy side of the world. Yeah, I want to add to that. Um, we've we've uh, we've gone as far as to uh, legalize some certain drugs in, in countries. Like uh, I know in Mexico, they're trying to legalize weed and marijuana and here we have our dispensaries now just for um well obviously for medical use but um the fact that we've had to go as far as to legalize some drugs because some of us are unhappy or just in immense pain is um i think it just it's an example of of uh, this book what is the title valley of the dolls yeah at first i, w- I was kind of confused on this quote but listening to this i I kind of I, I agree with you guys, but I have I have nothing else to add. Um. So yeah, one other thing I highlighted was this quote about Charles Madorians again. Um, I'll read it out. So we know how the universe ends, and Earth has nothing to do with it except that it gets wiped out too. How does the universe end? Said Billy. We blow it up, experimenting with new fuels for our flying saucers. A Transmodorian test pilot presses a start button and the whole universe disappears. So what I found about, what I found weird, well, not weird, but intriguing about this quote was that they already knew how the world was going to end. And later on, he asked them, well, 
you're not going to do anything about it. And they just, they're like, no, there's nothing we can do about it. And I wanted to reference this to, to Greek mythology because uh, you guys know the oracles that they have in, in Greek mythology. Most of the time, uh, one of the curses of the oracles that they, they prophesy and they can, nobody, nobody believes them. So I'm not saying the Chalfamandorians aren't believed, but they have um, like this oracle power kind of. They, they see already what's going to happen and they can't really do anything about it. Um, and I think this kind of has something to do with uh, one of the quotes we were talking about with free will. Because uh, because Billy Billy was saying that he would he would try and stop it if if, if he could, and the Chalfamandorians they, they they've already resigned to no we're all gonna die, and I just think that's not something that any of us would be ready to do, knowing how the world is gonna end and then just doing nothing about it. Yeah, well, um, I don't know much on Greek theology. Uh what is it mythology my bad so i'm not going to begin to try to talk about that but i think we talked about in the last podcast how bill and could billy could be in heaven or he's dead and trial famador is heaven and this might be related to that because how does the universe end what does the bible say revelations it talks about an apocalypse the earth is wiped out no far fault of her own so it's more this idea of when god sees that it's time to end the world then he'll just do it he'll press the button we all die the end yeah uh, going back to free will like they the billy wants to billy thinks that free will will is able to change this but um the draft madurians have already explored this theory and they're like well uh, we can't really do anything about it i guess one thing I also uh, found interesting is that they don't they don't specifically say it or even mention it, but um, I kind of see the twelve Midorians as like God, because God knows God knows the plan. He knows what's gonna happen, and they're just they're just there vibing. You know, they're just like, yeah, we're gonna die, but it's cool. It's cool. We got it. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, because. Like, they don't, they're the ones ending the world and they already know it. It says right here, we blow it up. Just, but the, what I'm confused about is why they won't stop it. They, they say it's inevitable, but I mean, all they could do, all they could do is just not press the, the button and they wouldn't. Well, I think, I think they say that they tried to stop it. They tried a bunch of different alternate realities to stop it and it just ends the same way. Earth blows up, which I think Vonnegut is saying that. In the end, we all die. I mean, we know Vana gets suicidal, so this could have to do with that. But we're all going to die no matter what we do, no matter what we change in our lives. Just at one point, we're all just going to die. Yeah, I, I like that perspective, actually. I didn't really think of that until now. You like the fact that we're going to die? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I and mean, it's, it's kind of calming, but no. yeah, you can't do much about that. Exactly. Change what you can, and when you go, you go. All right, so I will go ahead and jump into the next quote, which I hope is mine. Uh, yes, it is. You needn't worry about bombs, by the way. Dresden is an open city. 
it is defended and contains no war industries or troops concentration of any importance. So, as we know, he mentions earlier in the book that Dresden gets bombed, it's terrible, and a lot of people die. So, why add this part saying, like, how safe Dresden is? Well, that's a good question, because uh, knowing Billy's, um, what, the, his concept of time, you would have you would have thought that he already knew that Dresden was going to blow up because he knew that other guy was going to get uh, shot by the firing squad. Uh, what was his name? Um, I don't remember his name. But anyway, he they had said it, I think it was in the fifth chapter, at least like five times. This is the guy that's going to get shot next week. And uh, they just kept repeating that. So I don't I don't really know why um, they would they would say that, or Billy would say that, knowing that, that Dresden was going to get uh just blown up yeah i i remember uh reading somewhere that um billy knew that dresden was going to get bombed but i think he he adopted his um his trafmadurian view that there's nothing you can do about it so he's just accepting everything as it happens and like there's no free will in it Oh, that, that's a pretty good point. Um, but I'm going to go with more of the ironic standpoint and dramatic irony specifically. And that's because Vonnegut, in the beginning of the book, maybe the first chapter, I'm not too sure about that. Uh, he tells us that Dresden will be bombed and it will be terrible. However, Billy doesn't know that. And Diego, as you said that with the time thing, that's very confusing. Um, I'm not sure if this Billy in this moment has been to Tralfamador already. And that's why he doesn't know what will happen. But also I could see what Dylan's saying where he's just like, people are going to die. I can't change it. Stress about the things I can change. Don't stress about the things I can't. But I think that was a short quote. So we will continue with the next one. Um, so it says their address was Schlotterhaus-Fumpf. Schlotterhaus uh, means slaughterhouse and Fumpf means good old five. And I picked this quote because it mentions the book title, which Mr. Baffo tells us is always important. And my question is, why is this called, why is this this book title, and why is where they're staying called Schlotterhof? I think we uh, talked about it in class. Uh, they were they were put to work at some point in a uh, in a slaughterhouse, and that their their number was five. But yeah, the the significance. Um, I'm not really sure if it was just to mention where he was or that there's some deeper meaning behind the actual slaughterhouse or or whatnot. Yeah, like this this area, the, the slaughterhouse, maybe the, something happened there that was really impactful to Vonnegut and like changed, changed him, him in some way, like some significant way. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, Dylan, that what parts is he making up? I think maybe he's making up the name of the address because he wants to call Dresden a slaughterhouse. A bunch of people died from the fire bombings, more or less be naming Dresden a slaughterhouse for from the Americans because we were just slaughtering a bunch of innocent people. I can't. Yeah. He made it up. Yeah. I like that theory. I also like when uh, 
just now when you said that the slaughterhouse was a place of killing. Yeah, it, it hadn't occurred to me that that's, it could just mean that, that that slaughterhouse, they were just being murdered in Dresden. Everything that happened in, in Dresden was just complete slaughter. And this is great that we're all on the same page. So I will push us to our final quote. And that is, escape was out of the question. The atmosphere outside was the dome. The, the atmosphere outside the dome was synonym. Don't want to tell me I say that word. Cyanide. Thank you. Cyanide. And Earth was 446 trillion, 120 billion miles away. So my final question is, why choose this number? Um, I, I think that this is uh, uh, him saying how far away he feels from the Earth. Like, I feel like he was just typing zeros like at, in that. It was like zero, 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 because he, that's how far away he feels. Like he just, he's so disconnected. We just couldn't stop putting zeros, I guess. Because yeah, I remember uh, somewhere in chapter, chapter four, it was saying how the Charles Dorans were looking at him and how they were like praising him and everything. And he had never felt more better in his body. And, and yeah, being just, that's just how far he was from, from earth. Because everybody on Earth, they you know they hated him. His, his uh, the soldiers that he was with, they all hated him because he cried in his sleep and made noises. And and being so far from that, being on Falcondor, even if he's like in the zoo, that he's still appreciated. So, and I think he, um, he just he's enjoyed that being so far from Earth because he doesn't want to be around all that, um, all the negativity, all the all the history of the war. And and here on on Ralph Mador, he's just um, he's just Billy. Yeah, I I completely agree with the both of you. He feels disconnected from Earth. He doesn't want to be there. He saw terrible things in the war, and he just wants to get his mind off of everything he saw. And just that's how far away he feels from relating with other humans that he's known, his family, his friends, strangers on Earth, because he saw the things that they have not. And they just can't begin to understand everything he saw. Yeah. So unless you guys have anything else to add, I think we should uh, wrap up that segment. That was a lot of quotes we uh, discussed. But uh, make sure, stay tuned. We have our final section where we are interviewing uh, a war veteran. Don't come free. So now we are with uh, Mike Brisson, who is my cousin, and we will ask him questions about his war experience and how they relate to the book. So first of all, Mike, can you start by telling us what your job was and where you served? Yeah, um, I'm uh, currently a aeromedical evacuation officer, which means a uh, Black Hawk helicopter pilot uh, responsible for the treatment and transportation of uh, 
sick and wounded uh, service members and our allies, uh, flying them from point of injury missions uh, back to higher levels of care, um, both here in the United States and also overseas. Um, and I, I spent about seven and a half years on active duty before I transitioned to the National Guard in the state of Alabama. And uh, primarily my uh, majority of my combat time was while, was while I was on active duty um, in Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, bottom line up front, long story short, helicopter pilot, picking sick people up and dropping them off for higher level of care. All right. And now we're going to dive more specifically into what you did in the book. Um, Billy was watching Cinderella while he was away. So when you were serving, was there any type of fun thing to do? So in Afghanistan, uh, you know, and when, when my wife Sarah and I went, it was during the surge, uh, 2010, 2011. So there were, you know, over 120,000 service members in the country of Afghanistan and the place we were stationed, Bagram Air Base, just north of Kabul, uh, the capital of Afghanistan, uh, it was huge. I mean, it, it was a eight and a half mile wide uh, major airfield uh, that supported both rotary wing, aka helicopters and fixed wing aircraft. And uh, they had a ton of fun stuff to do. What, what, what the military has is called Morale, Welfare and Recreation or NWR. And so there are times there would be USO concerts. Um, we'd have celebrities show up. Um, and we had some of the creature comforts of home like Pizza Hut Express, Green Beans Coffee. Um, I think in, in one part of Afghanistan, they had a TGI Fridays. And, um, and actually the, probably the, the most fun thing I did was run the shadow marathon of the Boston Marathon. Um, in 2011, in April 2011, we we got up at about two o'clock in the morning uh, on the same day that they were running, <clears throat> excuse me, the Boston Marathon back home in Boston. And we started the marathon <clears throat> at two o'clock in the morning, unfortunately, but that was, that was a lot of fun being able to actually run the quote unquote Boston Marathon in Afghanistan, um, you know, in a combat zone. So that was, that was, that was probably the coolest thing I did in terms of downtime or fun things to do but um other than that a lot of exercise that's that's probably what everybody else does is is work out uh lose weight and save money um that's pretty interesting oh go ahead don i should say it's not all doom and gloom like uh the stories about uh world war one world war two and uh, like especially the civil war a lot of stories about uh, terrible things, but it's really, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to like, it's not the worst experience, right? No. And, and it's all relative. You know, if you're going to look at that, like if you're comparing from uh, civil war, world war one, world war two, uh, Korea, Vietnam, it, it's completely relative, just really based on technology. You know, you, you look back at those, those guys and gals, even into Vietnam, they didn't have internet, you know, just that, that having that, um, while our internet wasn't great, we still had internet, um, and we had network capability. Now, you know, it comes and goes, it's definitely not like back here in the States, but you know, doom and gloom, we're still in a combat zone. And actually general Petraeus and general McChrystal, when they were in the, in the, um, 
in command uh, out in um, Afghanistan and pretty much all of those forces there. They actually wanted to tailor back on some of those kind of recreational activities like having the Starbucks coffees or the Pizza Hut that, hey, we are in a combat zone. You know, we're there to, to fight the enemy, fight the Taliban and the insurgents. You know, we're not there to, to go out on beach vacations and everything. But relative to, yeah, Vietnam, Korea, and prior conflicts, uh, technology alone, being able to uh, keep in touch with our loved ones, um, even being able to pick up the phone. Now, me in aviation definitely had more of the creature comforts than our brothers and sisters in the infantry or in the military police or in armor, anyone that was on the ground, there, there'd be times they, they would not be able to talk to anybody outside their, their small patrol base for two to three weeks. They wouldn't be able to take showers. Um, they, you know, they were living off of these ready to eat meals. You know, they, they wouldn't have hot meals for 14 to 21 days. So um, those guys and gals, they probably thought it was doom and gloom most days while they were out on patrol or while they were fighting, um, you know, digging, digging foxholes, as we call it, digging in and basically sleeping in the dirt. You know, they, in aviation, we have a, a separate mission where unfortunately, unfortunately, we, we have to be showered, ready, have to have good sleep because, you know, we're flying six to $10 million aircraft. And they want us to get the best sleep. They want us to sleep in the air conditioning. They want us to be well-fed because uh, they don't want us crashing and destroying a helicopter, but, you know, more importantly, killing anybody. So I think it's all who you ask for. Me, personally, um, I actually enjoyed deployment. And I thought it was, a, it was a very unique experience that only less than 1% of the, the United States population and, and those, um, you know, within our country have experienced but if you go talk to an infantry man or woman or someone on the ground, they might have a completely different experience or a different viewpoint on doom and gloom. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. Yeah, I like that. So um, in the book, they say that Billy, who is the main character, was dealing with a similar crisis in similar ways. Um, they both found life meaningless, partly because of what they had seen in war. Now, I have a feeling that you didn't seem, feel life was meaningless after what you just described, but um, can you describe how you adjusted back to America, and is it similar in any way of what I just said? Yeah, so actually, there were, there were times I, I felt not so much meaningless, but what's the point? I remember one specific mission, I think actually Sarah was flying in the aircraft behind us. We were flying um, enemy um, injured um, so Taliban insurgent fighters that we had injured but not killed, um, and because of who we are, you know, we wins the we win the hearts and minds, and the United States always rises above and does the right thing. You know, if we didn't end up killing the enemy, we would still end up taking care of them. And I remember flying back to Bagram from one of the outlying posts with there with no U.S. service members. There was no one that was injured uh, from a NATO force or a U.S. force. We had three enemy wounded in action on my aircraft. And I think Sarah was flying as our security. Um, and we still ended up getting shot at, you know, so these, these people on the ground, these Taliban, these insurgents, these, you know, whatever, Al Qaeda, et cetera, um, the enemy, they, they didn't care. They still shot at us. We were transporting their own people, their own insurgent fighters, I guess their brothers in arms, as you could say it, um, and they didn't care. They had no respect for life, in my opinion, and because they just saw the big red cross on the side of my helicopter and said, oh, we're going to shoot them down regardless. We were saving their 
people's lives, three of them at least, um, and they would still shoot at us. And that, that really kind of changed my outlook on life. And, you know, when you come back to the States, you now realize there's a bigger purpose here that, you know, for those who serve or those who support the troops or support the, uh, the United States in terms of our combat efforts or our peacekeeping efforts, you know, we always try to rise above and do the right thing. You know, you might've heard of the Geneva Conventions um, and just the rules of war, the law of war, as they say, um, the just war theory, et cetera. But you come back to the United States and 99.9% and .9 of the people have not experienced what you've experienced, let alone either been in a, in, a, in a ditch somewhere fighting the enemy or been in, you know, up at 5,000 feet getting shot at while you're trying to save their own, the enemy. Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily meaningless, but I, I almost felt like, hey, what are we doing? You know, we're, we're, you know, my brothers and sisters are getting injured and killed trying to actually save some of these individuals. You know, we, if we had gotten shot down, you know, we would have lost the aircraft, obviously, which is just materiel. It's just, you know, dollars and cents, easily replaceable, but still costs taxpayer money. But we would have lost six U.S. service members, six U.S. Army soldiers trying to save three enemy. And it changes you when you come back and you realize that, you know, and fortunately with Sarah being there and having my company and everybody I serve with, we, we can we can relate to that. We can talk to each other about that. And, you know, you end up kind of learning to, I won't say live with it, but you say, hey, you're doing this for a higher purpose or a higher calling regardless of, you know, if you think it's right or not, you decided to volunteer. Remember, all of us are volunteers at the end of the day. And so I think it gives meaning during the times that you feel maybe it is meaningless, but, you know, we all rose our right hands or raised our right hands and said, hey, I, I volunteered to be a soldier. Uh, no one forced us. Compared to Vietnam, if you're going to, you know, looking back, you look at Vietnam, that's, you know, if you weren't, you know, if you didn't volunteer, you were drafted more than likely. So I think that's the, the adjustment back to the United States. And it takes time. You know, I still, you know, now it's been 11 years since we've been to Afghanistan and we still talk about it on occasion every day. You know, hey, we, we haven't been we haven't been back to Afghanistan in 10 years. You're like, what did we do? Uh, I have a question about yeah. the helicopter. You said it had the Red Cross emblem on it. Yeah, so we're, we're medical evacuation. So, you know, per Geneva Conventions, and if you looked into rules of war and everything, where when you affix anything, even a, an ambulance, you know, like a ground vehicle, anything, or the helicopter with the Red Cross, that's supposed to give you protections. You know, the enemy in the, in the you know, normal wars, you know, looking back at the Civil War, um, even the Revolutionary War, um, you know, World War One, a little bit, World War Two, Nazis, the Nazis didn't really care, but it's supposed to give you protection that, hey, that that's a medic. They're, you know, they're not there as a combatant. They're there to take care of their brothers and now sisters that are that are injured in the line of duty. Um, so that you're not supposed to be shot at. You're not supposed to be engaged because we're not combat troops we're medical troops. But yes, we had we had I think there's a total of seven Red Crosses on one helicopter. Just so you know, it's a medical evacuation helicopter, not a attack helicopter. Yeah, thanks. Because I, yeah, I was wondering why they were shooting at you if you had the the Red Cross. But they yeah. don't care, and that's the thing. That's where people, the Taliban doesn't care, Al Qaeda doesn't care, all these terrorists. They could care less. They just they want to terrorize, regardless if you look at domestic terrorism or if you look at what we know now overseas insurgents. Um, 
homegrown terrorism. Terrorists are there to cause chaos. They could care less who or what they destroy or kill. Um, and they, do, they definitely, the Taliban are not parties in the Geneva Conventions. They could care less about whatever, you know, everyone got together in Geneva and decided to sign a piece of paper. The Taliban did not, they could care less. Al-Qaeda could care less. Osama bin Laden, while he was alive, could care less. Um, just for people who don't know, can you say what the Geneva Convention is? Yeah, so, and that's why I kept saying like the law of war, the rule of war. It's there. We are as as the United States. We are signatories to the Geneva Conventions, which outlines basically the conduct of armed conflict. And you know, as probably funny as it seems, even in war, there are rules you have to follow. Like, for for instance, if someone surrenders, they put up a white flag, they put their hands up. It is technically considered a war crime if you kill them. If they surrender. And, you know, they put their hands up, they drop their weapons or they're unarmed and you injure them or kill them. That is a war crime and you can be prosecuted. There, there are um, there are international courts that will prosecute you. And if you look like, for instance, right now, like in Syria um, and uh, even Korea, um, even during before the fall of the USSR, uh, the Soviet Union, you know, there have been people that have been brought up on war crimes. Uh, such as that, like they, and, and Nazi Germany is one of the biggest examples of that. When you look at the um, Nuremberg trials, that I was following orders is no longer an excuse, you know, and even to this day, almost every single day, if you look, read through the newspaper, you'll see at least one or two mentions about something from World War II. And I, I believe there was a, there was like a 97 year old Nazi guard that was just sentenced to prison um, he was tried and convicted for war crimes that he committed at like Auschwitz at one of the concentration camps. Um, so yeah, basically uh, we are parties to it and there are, there are dozens and dozens, if not over, I, I don't remember how many nations are actually signatories, but they basically all got together and said, hey, we agreed to this. You know, you will not shoot at um, non-combatants, civilians. You will not shoot at ambulances. You won't shoot at medical personnel. You won't shoot at chaplains. You know, and that's the other thing, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, they don't care. They'll kill a priest, they'll kill a rabbi, they'll kill a pastor. Um, you know, the chaplains are completely unarmed. You know, they're, they, they're not even allowed to carry weapons per the Geneva Convention because they're chaplains. They're there as spiritual advisors and counselors. So if they, if they picked up a weapon, um, that's a violation of the rule of war. Um, just like with medical evacuation, we can't go in and start blowing stuff up using the Red Cross because we're supposed to be non-combatants. We're only there to pick people up, treat them and bring them to a higher level of care. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and unfortunately, if you look at it, Syria, Iran, North Korea, um, you know, some of our, our very negative state actors out there are not signatories. And regardless, even if they were or weren't, I'm not sure who would hold them responsible if they could ever. Um, but if you look up like the Hague, uh, the international courts, you can see, hey, you know, just look up war crimes. And that that basically explains what the Geneva Conventions is and what it what you can and cannot do. Okay, thank you very much for the clarification. And then uh, does anyone have any other follow up questions? Yeah, I, I got one. All right. Uh, do so as as someone who just pick up um the patient patients um 
you guys you said you weren't allowed to fight either even if um no so we can't no so we can so what that what the geneva conventions allows is if we're protecting ourselves or protecting our patient we can fight back what the red cross does in the helicopter we cannot carry armed troops that are in there to go and attack someone or attack a, an objective as we call it so say we were going in and blowing up a a Taliban building or an insurgent building or an Al Qaeda building, or say we'll just use the raid on Osama bin Laden in May of 2011. With those special forces, those Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, the pararescue jumpers, we could not carry them into the Osama bin Laden compound in the back of a medical evacuation helicopter. That would be a violation of the rule of war because you're, you're basically disguising combat troops behind a medical platform, as we say. Now, if we're shot at, we can return fire and we can protect our patients and protect ourselves. There is nothing that can, nothing that can prohibit you from defending yourself or defending your patient. There is nothing. If you feel your life is threatened, it's kind of like a police officer. If you feel like deadly force is, is, is authorized, or if you feel it's necessary to meet the threat, by all means, you can do that. And while we're flying, we very rarely because we always had a security aircraft with us that could, that was an attack helicopter or an assault helicopter that could protect us. Um, so we very rarely ever had to shoot back or even pull out our weapons, our personal weapons to protect ourselves because we, we always had an escort, so to say, or a bodyguard as I guess you could say it. But, but no, if we, were, if we were attacked, like someone came up to us and started shooting at our aircraft and we could shoot back, we would, we would definitely shoot back if we could or if they're attacking our patients. And that's where the combat medics, the ground medics, the, the men and women who service field medics, as they're called, they are absolutely the first, the first rule of taking care of your patient is to eliminate the threat. So they are trained to do care under fire where the person that's injured and the combat medic will put down fire until they neutralize the threat because the best way to save your patient is to kill the enemy to stop or at least stop the enemy from shooting at you. You know, obviously the enemy has already hurt the soldier. So you wanna shoot back. You wanna fire back until that threat is neutralized and then take care of your patient. So that there's nothing to say you can't defend yourself or defend your patient. All right, um, anything else, Dylan or Diego? Not good. All right, so now Mike, do you know what Dresden is? Uh, from what World is War II? Dresden, the fire bombing. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd have to go back and, but I probably, it's probably been since high school. I'm trying to think of even in my military history class, I, I remember that. All right, well, that's okay. I could just give you a little brief thing. So basically the book is about uh, Kurt Vonnegut's experience in World War II. And it kind of happened because of his, he was a prisoner in Dresden when the US firebombed it. So now my question to you is, have you ever experienced anything like Dresden? I know you told us one story about terrible things that have happened to you and Sarah and other U.S. soldiers in combat. But have you ever experienced something similar to the terror that happened in Dresden? Well, I don't know if it would rise to the level of terror, but almost on a daily basis, the enemy, while we were, you know, in, in sleeping, eating, hanging out, you know, we would get mortars and rockets shot at us. They were pretty inaccurate, but there were, there were times there was one that hit just down the street from us and burnt down our dining facility where we got our cafeteria, basically. Um, 
So, you know, in terms of firebombing or, or, you know, napalming or anything like that, nothing, nothing, you know, the, our, the enemy we were fighting there, the Taliban, they just, they were not like um, the Axis powers, you know, with Nazi, um, sorry, Nazi Germany, Italy, um, the Soviets before they, they swap sides. Um, they, you know, nothing to that extent, particularly when you compare it to like concentration camps and such like that. Um, and, you know, the, the Taliban just did not, they didn't have any aircraft. They couldn't just fly over and start bombing people. So they, they relied on all of the stuff we gave them back in the late seventies and the eighties. We, we gave all these weapons to the Mujahideen so they could fight the Soviets while they were in Afghanistan. If you've ever read the book or seen the movie, Charlie Wilson's war, that was basically, Hey, how we armed the movie. And we armed Osama bin Laden, unfortunately. Um, and they turned against us, obviously. Um, and uh, so they were they were basically using all the weapons we had, the CIA had given them back in the late 70s and early 80s after Vietnam. Um, so that, that way, you know, in terms of terrible, that that's what they were using. AKs, old Soviet weapons. Um, you know, they really didn't have tanks or anything. Um, and they definitely didn't have any aircraft. And that's why the Soviets kind of dominated a big a, a bit um, before the U.S. stepped in and secretly gave the Mujahideen their weapons. So. Um, the scariest thing or the most terrible thing would be the rockets. And we did lose a few people um, from that. They were either severely injured or killed from a rocket or mortar attack. Um, we did have a couple of aircraft get shot down and, and they died. Unfortunately, we, we lost a few of our pilots and crew members uh, after they were shot down in a valley. Um, but in terms of an entire city getting bombed or, or napalmed or, or firebombed, uh, nothing to that level, but still, you know, even losing one person changes you, particularly a fellow pilot or a fellow aviator, um, you know, that changes you because they're out there, all those guys and gals are out there attacking and protecting us while they're trying to mortar, while the enemy's trying to attack us, you know, we're, we're sitting comfortably in our beds while these attack helicopter pilots and recon helicopter pilots are going out and, and doing their mission and trying to neutralize the threat, but unfortunately they're, they're not always successful. So I think dreadful and terrible in a different psychological way that even one, you know, you look at the, the tens of thousands of people that were killed in Vietnam, World War II, et cetera. And even one soldier getting killed now is horrendous and it makes the news, you know, obviously they couldn't do that back in World War II, even Vietnam, you know, start listing off all the people that were injured or killed during Vietnam, particularly. Um, but now, you know, if, if someone's killed overseas, it'll be all it'll be on the national news now. So that right there, I think, is dreadful enough. Yeah, I never I never heard of that before that we gave weapons to the Taliban yeah. and Osama bin Laden. Well, so and, and they weren't well. So you just got to think of the way and you don't have to. We, we gave it to the local and that's why they were called the Mujahideen and the Mujahideen still around technically. Um, but yeah, really, the if you want to kind of get in, kind of get the down and dirty on it, Charlie Wilson's War of the Movie does a pretty good job. Now, obviously, there is some Hollywood to it, but that was basically it. I mean, if you look up Charlie Wilson and go to his Wikipedia page, he he basically kind of led the, the attack in terms of giving getting money from Congress um, to the CIA to you know, other branches, the uh, DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, all the, all the alphabet soup as we call them. Um, and we secretly get, and that's why they're using US made 
weapons, Israeli-made weapons against the Soviets back in the, you know, before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's how they were able to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan, even though they had helicopters, the Soviets had helicopters and the Afghani Afghanis did not, um, because we gave them the weapons to shoot down the helicopters. We helped Pakistan. That was the other thing. We, you know, we, we, were, we were given money and weapons uh, to Pakistan and the Israelis didn't really like that, but the Israelis ended up buying in and giving Pakistanis uh, money and weapons and, and fighter jets, et cetera. Um, so yeah, if you ever want to learn about that, just look, you know, look up the Mujahideen or look up Charlie Wilson and, and you can figure out, hey, most of their weapons, we gave it to them. So every time we were getting shot at, if it wasn't with a Soviet weapon, it was with a U.S. weapon. Wow, that, that's really interesting. I'll probably look that one up. Yeah. So talk about dreadful getting shot at by your own missiles that, or rockets are is terrible too. Um, Dylan or Diego, anything else? No, I mean, I, yeah, because I had originally thought that we only helped um, Jerusalem or Israel, not Jerusalem. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that we had also given weapons to the, uh, what did you say they were called? Uh, the Mujahideen was the, the local, kind of like the Taliban, you know, that, that was just the, um, you know, the name of that, if you want to say that tribal organization, but we also gave money and weapons to Pakistan too. And, you know, as you saw back in 2011, Pakistan harboring Osama, whether they knew it or not, I don't know, but they say they didn't. All right, then I will continue on. And now this is something we talked about in our first episode, and I'll bring it up here to ask you. So um, they talk about the World War II being a children's crusade. Now, Mike, you were young when you joined the military, right? I mean, 23. Okay, 23. And now, um, would well, you technically say... I was 18, actually. No, I, I mean, I joined ROTC when I... So, no, I mean, I, Sarah and I both, both signed when we were 18. So, yeah, I guess, you know, if it, and then we commissioned when... I guess we were 22. So, yeah, we, we signed up and then became officers at 22. So, from 18 to 22, we, you know, yeah, we were pretty young. Oh, okay, good. That actually helps me. Um, so would you say that war is fought by quote-unquote babies such as 18 is too young to join, and should that be changed? No, I, I think if you're in, you can join when you're 17 um, with parental consent, um, and I don't think that's too young at all because there, there are certain people that just have it in their families, kind of like our family, you know, with grandpa and uncle John, um, dad, everybody. I mean, we we you know, we, we come from a long lineage of military service, you know, whether you be enlisted or officers. Um, so I, I think there are plenty of young men and women at the age of 17, particularly with their parental consent and parental blessing that, hey, they, they want to graduate high school and maybe they're not 18 yet and they, they want to go serve. They want to do four to six years, get some life experience as a, as a service member, whether it be in one of the, the branches to include the Space Force now. Um, and uh, I don't think it should be changed at all. I, I think you're, you're at your prime between 17 to 22, 17 to 25. You know, you're probably in the best shape of your life. Um, your, your brain is, is still developing. So you can, you can get into that sense of good order and discipline. And I think, it, I think it just prepares you for the remainder of your life, particularly if you join when, you know, cause that's, that's all kind of Sarah and I have ever known is, is, is discipline, is order, 
is how to take care of the person to the, your left and right, because that's what we were brought up as. You know, even though we went to a civilian college, you know, we, we went to a college in, on the beach, basically, we, we still had order and discipline in our lives on a morning basis, you know, just having to get, get up at five o'clock in the morning and go exercise because the army told us to, I think that changes you for the better. So no, I think, hey, at 17 and your parents say, let's do it. Well, and I have a bunch of people in my unit who are still in high school, they joined and they're finishing high school while they're serving part-time in the National Guard. Um, and then as soon as they graduate, they promote and then they can go to college and then the military pays for their college and they, they can earn skills and learn skills that their peers who are 17, 18, 19, won't have, you know, that, hey, I can go, you know, go to the range and, and shoot, you know, uh, a handgun, shoot a rifle, learn how to drive a tank, learn how to drive a Humvee, learn how to fly, fly a helicopter. We, we, you could be 18 years old and flying a $6 million Blackhawk helicopter, 19 years old, probably by the time you get there, you know. Um, so no, I, I think, and, I, and I've heard that before where, you know, war is a young man's game or a young woman's game. Um, and primarily everyone's got to start somewhere. You know, you're not going to be a general, you're not going to be a Colonel when you're 18 years old, you know, it takes time, it takes experience and everyone had to start somewhere. Even a second Lieutenant who's 22 years old has to start somewhere. Yeah. I think, uh, when this book was written, when Vonnegut was in the war times were pretty uh, different, like maybe people didn't want to be in the war because they were drafted and there weren't as many like I, there weren't as many resources for people back then, but I think now there's a lot more, um, like it's not just, oh, uh, uh, join the war because you know, your family's poor or whatever. I mean, it might still kind of be the case. Today, Some people but, do. Some people do. They, because they want, it's a steady and you know, you're going to get paid. That's the thing. Some people join any of those services because, Hey, as soon as you sign up, you're getting paid. And now is it the greatest work in the world? Probably not. You know, the initial couple months, you're probably going to, Hey, I gotta, I gotta indoc indoctrinate myself into the military. Um, and there are, there are some people that said, well, and you'll, you'll see it. There's a great documentary. If you don't get a, if you get a chance to watch it, it's called carrier. It's on PBS. Um, I think it's on Hulu and Netflix or Disney plus, but it's, it's a PBS documentary. It's like eight hour long episodes of carrier. And they interview all these 18 to 25 year olds. And some of them say it was either join the Navy or go to prison because they knew they were stuck in a, you know, one man town or a one horse carriage town. And they, they were either going to end up in jail or they were going to end up in the Navy or the military. Um, and that, like I said, that documentary, I still, I rewatch that almost every year just because I, I just find it so interesting. And it was during the height getting into Operation um, Iraqi Freedom following the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier group um, and just seeing these 18 to 22 year olds that they were very, very open about, well, yeah, I wanted to join the Navy, see the world, make some money. And other people said, well, I'd be dead in a ditch somewhere had I not joined the Navy. So yeah. there you will. There are people that do that. Sarah and I joined, you know, we did ROTC. They, they paid for our college. They paid for flight school. You know, so we joined, you know, out of a sense of service, but also, a sense of, hey, we, we can do something really interesting and really making a difference and hopefully passing that down to our children now, whether or not they want to serve, that's clearly up to them. Yeah, there's a lot more uh, 
reason to join the war and a lot of advantages. And it is, I think you, I would make a note that if you do join the military, particularly the army, I tell, and I tell people even today, I said, be prepared to deploy. You, you cannot join the army thinking you will never deploy. Now that, you know, we've drawn down, we only have a couple thousand people overseas that is publicized, but you know, particularly you join the war after 2001, I mean, you pretty much, you were, you were getting deployed. I mean, we got deployed as soon as we graduated from school and were, became aviators, we deployed within three months. As soon as we were rated and licensed and certified to fly a helicopter, we deployed. They sent us immediately to Afghanistan. So we knew going into it, particularly being pilots or being a doctor or being an infantryman or woman, you're going you're gonna to deploy. All right, then I will continue with our last question for you. And that is in the book, um, she says, you'll be played in the movies by Frank Sinatra and John Wayne or some of those other glamorous, war-loving, dirty old men. And war will just look wonderful. So we'll have a lot of more of them. So the question for you is, uh, how do you feel about how war is portrayed in the movies? And isn't it all similar to how actual war is? Uh, I think the newer movies, you know, John Wayne, um, he actually, when he was too old to join, you know, when Pearl Harbor came around, he was in his mid thirties. So I think he actually was given a deferment based on his age alone. And then he had a family deferment too, you know, so some of the actors and everything. And, but there are, every movie is going to have a little bit of Hollywood twist, but I think nowadays, particularly the more movies that are that are leaning towards documentaries, um, I think they do a pretty good job. You know, like the Hornet's Nest um, is phenomenal. Um, a lot of the movies about Iraq and Afghanistan nowadays, um, particularly if they're more documentary-ish, while they still are using actors, I, I think I think they do a pretty darn good job because once once bullets start flying, once bombs start going off all of the best laid plans in the world, they kind of go out the window. You know, I think, well, who was it? Mike Tyson that said, everyone has a great plan until they get punched in the face. Um, or, you know, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but I think that he pretty much said that. It was, yeah, you know, you got a great plan until someone, you know, knocks you in the face. Uh, it's the same thing. As soon as the first bullet comes whipping by you or the first bullet hits your aircraft or a, a bomb goes off, you know, everything kind of goes out the window. Um, so, you know, of course, you know, there will always be a little bit of Hollywood dramatics to it. And no one knows, you know, unless they have actual video, which some of these Hollywood videos or movies do. They actually have video from actual firefights because you think about it compared to Vietnam, compared to Korea, compared to all the other ones. Um, we have what's called a combat camera and we also have a combat painter. So we have people that they're only mission in the military is to go out and document. They take video, they take audio. And you think about it, you know, when Sarah and I deployed, we, we had cell phones and we were, we were able to text, we were able to call people, you know, back even in the first Gulf War, you think about it, when did the first cell phone come out? My first cell phone uh, in 2003 was the brick, the one that was attached to the car that had the, 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 the plug that stole. And that was in 2003. Um, now you look at the first Gulf War in, in Vietnam, yeah, no one had cell phones, no one had internet. Um, and now you can take photos and video and audio, just like it's, you're, you're staying at home, you know, videotaping your day at the beach. So I think, I think Hollywood takes some liberties with it. And yeah, if you look at John Wayne, it takes a little more of the liberty with it. 
But if you watch like Band of Brothers, that, that is pretty much historically accurate. Now the dialogue is going to be, you know, going to be um, dramatic for obvious reasons, but mo most dialogue when you're getting shot at is going to be dramatic. It's not going to be, uh, it's probably not going to be calm and cool and collected unless you're, you know, John Wayne. Uh, I wanted to specifically ask you about the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Have you seen that one? Oh yeah, Hacksaw Ridge, yep. Yeah, uh, would you say, I mean, he was a conscientious objector, but would you say that uh, what he was doing was accurate to um, a medical, the, the guys on the, on, the, on the actual field? Yeah, I mean, and I think, they, and again, they, and I think even, I'm trying to remember if at the beginning of the movie, they, or at the end in the credits, you know, that they, they took some liberties with it. Um, but that's it, you, you'll get conscientious objectors, but in terms of medical, those who are out there to save others, you know, in the, 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 not the catchphrase, but our motto is so that others may live. The Coast Guard uses that motto as well. Um, medevac in the army, particularly, you know, our motto, our slogan is when I have your wounded, because um, Major Charles Kelly during Vietnam would not leave the firefight, would not leave the hot LZ. So he was in a landing zone with his Huey helicopter getting shot at and everyone kept telling him to go. And he, he looked over to the guys and said, not until I have your wounded. Um, and that kind of stuck, you know, that and obviously after World War II, after Hacksaw Ridge. Um, but still that, you know, army medics, military medics have a higher calling knowing that, hey, you know, they're putting their lives, their bodies, their expertise on the line for everybody else, for their brothers and sisters, um, regardless of what they think of the war. They're there to save lives, protect their patients and get them to definitive care, get them to a, a trauma surgeon, get them back to the hospital. Um, and that's why, you know, the Army medevac, Aero medevac, particularly in the helicopters, has, has probably the most unique mission of any of the military services or any of the military missions known to man, you know, we, we go out when no one else will go out, you know, just like the Coast Guard, so that, you know, others may live until we have all the wounded, regardless of how we feel about the war. I could care less if I agree with the war, if I disagree with the war. All you care about is getting, getting down, getting the medics, getting their patients in the back of the helicopter, in the back of the ambulance, and, and getting them to safety. Well, I think that's it. Um, thank you very much for joining you. And of course, thank you for your service. And thanks, Sarah, for hers. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you for listening. Check back next week so you can find out what's up with all those dots. Have a great week. So it goes.